I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 209. And today in the show, we're joined by writer and author Tovar Cerulli to discuss his journey from vegan to hunter, the value of thinking deeply about hunting, the ethics of hunting, how we talk about hunting, and much, much more. Alright guys, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we're joined by Tovar Cerulli. And Tovar is a vegan turned hunter. He's a writer He's the author of a book titled The Mindful Carnivore, and this book, it's a book that I read a few years back, and I just really enjoyed it. It's been something I've, I've turned back to in, you know, over the past couple of years and found little interesting quotes and reread certain sections. It's really well done, and this book chronicles Tovar's personal journey from being someone who had a negative view of hunters and who had a negative view of eating meat to now someone who himself is a hunter and who is a meat eater. Um, so that's kind of an interesting transformation on its own. But he goes through this whole story and, and speaks to a lot of other things I find really important, like the ethics of hunting, the importance of thinking about the why and the how of hunting. Um, he talks about the way we represent ourselves as hunters, how we can introduce new people to hunting, and lots and lots more stuff like that. So it is a, it's a very interesting book. Tovar is a very interesting guy, and the conversation we had, maybe I'm biased, but I think it was very interesting too. So that is going to be the main event today. Um, I'm looking forward to that. But before we get into it. We do need to take our traditional 15 minutes or so for our pregame show <laughs> with my red-bearded, nine-fingered pal, Dan Johnson. Um, and before we start recording, Dan, you said you had a lot on your mind. What's going on? Dude, I just, like, my brain has been firing on all cylinders lately and just a lot about, I don't know, just a lot about everything, but, <laughs> but I mean, like, most of it has revolved around starting to lay out my like my western hunting game plan and i don't mean short term like what i'm doing this year but i mean long term for you know trying to set something up 
every year or multiple times every year to head west to hunt new species. So I like your ambitions, man. Yeah, I've I've kind of got this I don't want to say a midlife crisis going on, but I have this <laughs> but you're real having a midlife crisis. <laughs> right, but I have this realization where you know, I got if I I have this bucket list I have written on my desk in permanent marker. Right. So it's there. Is it literally on the desk? Like it's you on, took a marker and wrote it on the desk? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Wow. And it's my bucket list. And I, I, it's a list of animals that I want to harvest. Is and this your desk at work? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. This is my, uh, <laughs> that'd be cool. Though. That would be so funny. Your boss comes up. Why, why have you scrawled elk, moose, and caribou all across, <laughs> all across the office desk here, Dan? <laughs> My response would be, why haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> so sorry, continue. No, but so like I, I want to put this game plan together, right? I want to look into what I need to do as far as preference points, as far as, you know, getting set up rules, regulations, all these things. And I know that's kind of a long term, you know, that's something that's not done in one night of scouting on Google Maps. You know what I mean? But I have been looking at like <laughs> it is so addicting. I went to Onyx Maps and I signed up for their free trial period. Oh yeah. And <laughs> I I've already put in hours looking at different states throughout the West at, you know, BLM land and national forest and state land and and all these things just kind of looking what sections, you know, starting to look at not not right now, but look at like trophy records, you know, as far as big deer or big elk are taken, but more along the lines of numbers and, you know, opportunities, so to speak, uh, and just get something concrete to where I can say, okay, this year I'm doing this, next year I'm doing this, and then every year add something towards the end of that. Yeah, no, uh... I think that's sometimes half the fun too, is just the planning, the dreaming, the thinking about it, you know, imagining what this might be like, all that research and scouting, you know, that, that helps get you through the off season and, uh, the long nights with the crying baby and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yep. So I'm right there with you, dude. And I, I, the, the Onyx maps, if you're going out West and you need to understand those public private borders and all that stuff, it is, it is a super helpful tool for that kind of thing. Um, and then I think we've talked about before, but I combine that, like when I'm doing my Western scouting, I combine that and then use the information on gohunt.com, um, which I think you're familiar with as well. Um, and they've got a whole bunch of like unit specific data for all sorts of States. And they've got kind of, they outline all of the, uh, the, the things you need to understand within each state for how to apply for tags, what the point systems are, just cause it, it, you know, we've come to find out, um, being Midwesterners that have begun hunting out West more, it's a lot more complicated than just going and picking up a tag at Walmart. Right. Um, in a lot of these States at least. So, um, yeah, I'm right there with you. I, I'm not in a position where I feel like I can map it out years ahead of time. There's so much flux right now for me, but right. I am getting excited for this year. And already this year, I feel like it's so much up in the air, even a lot too. Um, cause I, at one point I thought I was going to do a Montana elk hunt and now that's shifting to an Idaho elk hunt. Um, I think maybe, so that stuff's all up in the air and, but it's exciting. So, yeah. Um, as far as, yeah. And I'm talking, you know, things I can do right now are 
look at preference points, right? I'm too late for most draws, but for example, Wyoming, right? They have a um, they have a preference point system that starts up in July, and I'll buy my you know I'll buy my elk and mule deer and antelope preference points, so that way when it comes time to you know start looking for a zone, I have this basically ticket that I'm waiting in line is basically what it is, you know, so uh, yeah. getting ready to cash those in at some point. Yeah, way better to be having those, you know, doing that for years and years, right. and then finally when you're ready to hunt, you've got the opportunity versus saying, oh, this year I really, I've got the time, I want to hunt Wyoming, but then you don't have the points to hunt anywhere half decent, so. Right, absolutely. Yeah, man, that's exciting. Um, I'm actually heading to Idaho. Uh, speaking of going out west, I'm heading to Idaho in two days. What are you doing out there? The uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous is happening this weekend in Boise. So a whole bunch of hunters and anglers getting together. There's going to be a whole bunch of different seminars. There's going to be, you know, just kind of like this big, I think it's called Beers, Bands, and Public Lands. Just kind of like a big get-together, throw-down party one night. There's going to be a storytelling night. Um, Steve... Uh, Renella, Remy Warren, uh, a bunch of other folks like that. Avon Chenard, the founder of Patagonia, is going to be yep. speaking there. So a bunch of interesting people will be speaking at that event. A um, bunch of cool stuff. And I'm yeah, on I'm the a- I'm on the board for our Michigan chapter, so going to do some chapter training stuff, and uh, should be a cool deal. So yep. looking forward to that. Awesome. My buddy uh, Dan Bourne is uh i think he's in the minnesota chapter and he's heading out there to uh um, cover that as well so it should be uh it should be fun for you guys yeah i I think there's going to be a quite a contingent of uh of folks from all over the country so i'm looking forward to it and i was i was originally going to try to tack on a turkey hunt to the end of it i thought okay i'll be out there for for two days at the event and i'll stay for like another two days to turkey hunt out in idaho because their opening day is like that next day i think um but then man just after being gone for like eight or nine days or whatever it was for the shed hunting trip uh i just kind of was thinking you know what i'm already gonna be gone almost four days as it is making that until get a seven day trip would be kind of tough on the tough on the wife and baby so no turkey hunting for me as you say, got to got to put family first, right? That's right. You got to put the family first so that you can put them last in November. <laughs> <laughs> that was mean. That was unfair, <laughs> dude. So today, just just before we started recording this, um, Kylie had been feeding him, and I was sitting next to her talking about something, and she was going to go off to do something, so she handed him to me to you know to chill while she went to go do whatever she was going to do, and literally. She hands him, and the moment my hands touch him, he projectile vomits all yes. over me, like yes. all over my chest and pants. and I mean, like completely had to change everything. Um, it was like a half gallon of stuff all over. Yep. So dad life is in full force these days, dude. Yeah. Well, congrats. Uh, <laughs> it always makes me feel better about myself when I hear other dads getting barfed on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a whole new world these days. I... uh I sit in my office and, and read books about, you know, Tovar Cerulli and whatnot, and then I go into the living room and I'm puked on and cleaning up poop and singing songs and, and doing all sorts of weird new things. Yep. Uh, speaking of kids, though, you texted me a while back and told me that I had to ask you yes. about your daughter's first shed find. Dude, it was crazy. 
What okay, happened? So we were we were out at this state park in Iowa, and they have like captive. They have captive buffalo and captive uh, elk on it. Just you know, so people can drive up to the fence and go and look. Right. Gotcha. Hi, it's it's like a high fence type thing. And so we're driving around. I'm with my dad. So you hunt? Fr- you hunt there then? No, you. I don't. I think you can. <laughs> no, I. That was oh, a joke. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'm talking for for whitetails though. I think you can hunt there. Oh really? It's oh, yet. but it's not a high fence thing for. No, not for whitetails. Right. It's gotcha. just a small portion of this. I follow you. I follow you. Yep, yep. I'm I'm totally getting you sidetracked though. That's all right. That's all right. That's what we do. That right? is okay. So you were at the state park. Yep. My kids. My kids get out to go. My my youngest is sleeping in the car seat. My dad takes my daughter and my son over to this like grassy hilltop where they have a swing set. And I'm I walk away from the vehicle and I am looking at these cabins that potentially we could rent during the summertime. So all of a sudden I turn around, I hear my daughter just screaming bloody murder. And I'm just like, what, what is happening? And she's running towards me. Like she's running towards me at full force. <laughs> and my, my son is running behind her and my dad is sitting there kind of smiling behind it all. He's not running and dad, dad, dad. And I'm like, what's going on? What's going on? Cause I thought she fell off the swing set uh-huh. and she lifts up her hand and she finds this two point deer side (laughs) and she she's running up to me it's like and there was there was deer poop everywhere so it's like as you know like it was kind of similar to what we where we were finding all the sheds at uh when we went shed hunting with ben yeah right Uh, but it was a lot shorter so these, these deer as the grass started getting a little greener they were out there eating the fresh green grass that was coming up near this swing set and this small ant- buck must have shed his antlers right there because there was deer poop everywhere. And my daughter saw it, recognized it, and ran up to me. He's like, Dad, I just found a deer antler. So I I started, like, geeking out, right? I'm like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is awesome, Ava. Where did you find it? Tell me about it. And I started – and so, like, my – my enthusiasm kind of trumped hers and she didn't know what to say she's like i don't know i think i was asking her like what's the age class you know like, <laughs> where's the buck bed where's the buck right, bed? right 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 where's the trail right right and she's like dad you know and i i just i just lost it i it was so exciting and when we got it home like this is an internal battle for me we got it home She's like, Daddy, I want to paint it. I'm like, uh-uh. oh, yeah. nope, you can't paint it. Why, Dad? It's my shed. I'm just like, <laughs> this is your first shed you ever found by yourself. This is like, this is very important. And she's like, but Dad. And she did that little girl thing. And I'm like, okay, you can paint it. And she, so she painted it. And now we have it sitting up on this little picture frame thing. And uh, it's pretty cool. I, I will remember that, even though it wasn't an official shed hunt. I will remember that for a very long time. That's amazing. That is yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, what 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 color did you paint it? Uh, purple and pink. Perfect. Yep. Your first yep. purple and pink shed, I, I would assume, at least, in the house. <laughs> uh, it's the second one. I found a small one that I let her paint uh, this year. <laughs> but but she wanted this one because it was special. And uh, um, 
But yeah, and my wife, she wanted to do, you know that big one she found at uh, Ben's? Yeah. She wanted to do some kind of decorative thing with it. And I was like, sweetie, this is your biggest shed ever. So until you find another shed bigger, you can't do anything with this one yet. It's going to it's gonna sit in my office and collect dust. <laughs> yeah. So I could say. <laughs> Since this is your shed, I will keep exactly. it in my office and right. dictate how it's, right. how it's treated. It's funny because, you know, like I get I got way more excited for her to find that shed than she does. Uh-huh. And I, I even give her this little space on our wall where all of her sheds go. <laughs> and uh, and, you know, and she's like, well, I want to do something creative with them. I'm like, no, you just like I instantly take over. I instantly <laughs> took them all over. Yeah. Hey, man, I, I I'm right there with you. I'm a little possessive of my sheds, too. I, when I was gone out west on that trip, my wife sent me a picture and she's like, how mad does this make you? And it was like 15 of my sheds that I'd found this year, the 14 sheds that I had picked up before my big trip. She'd taken all of them away from the place I had put them all out, and she put them, <laughs> and she put them across the mantelpiece of the fireplace. And a lot of people would probably think that's cool that, that my wife is willing to put sheds on the mantelpiece of our fireplace in the living room. But I was like so particular about where I wanted them. I'm like, ah, I don't know about this. Right. Right. <laughs> She's always trying to steal the sheds and like put them in random nooks and crannies on shelves or in our bedroom or the bathroom. And I kind of like the idea of having all of them all in one place so I can like bask in the glory of the multitudes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yep. I think uh, I think that's probably changing soon. So yeah. Yep. Nothing stays permanent forever, unfortunately, no. uh, especially with when like this room that I'm in now probably won't be my office forever. So I'm going to have to find a new little corner of the house where I'm going to need to put all my mounts and, and uh, deer sheds. But I have one last question for you. I Kay. know we're running long on the intro, but I have a European mount, right? Okay. And I want to turn it into a regular shoulder mount. What did what did you have to do with when uh, you know someone found or you found Jawbreaker dead, right? Yes, right. So what did you have to do to get a shoulder mount out of a, a dead skull? Well, so what happened was I found the whole you know antlers and skull and everything intact on him. So I took the dead head back home with me after I got a salvage tag from the DNR, and I had a friend, you know Dustin. Yep. who had, he'd killed the buck the year before, but decided that it was too small to do a shoulder mount, decided he didn't want to shoulder mount it, but for whatever reason, he decided to keep the cape just in case, you know, he changed his mind. And so right. he had the taxidermist, who is his brother-in-law, and a friend of mine, um, had his brother-in-law keep the cape. So then I find Jawbreaker like four months later, and right. he reached out to me and said, hey, you should shoulder mount that thing, and you sh- and you should use my cape. I'm not. I don't really need it. You should do it. So, basically, I just brought the deadhead to the taxidermist. He had a cape, and you know they just saw off the skull cap with the antlers or whatever, and uh, put that into the form. So I think that all you need, if you've got you know you've got the skull and antlers intact already, bring the euro mount in, and then I do think I don't know if this is everyone does this, but I, I've heard that a lot of taxidermists have extra capes sitting around that people don't right. want for whatever reason. And so they keep it just for this reason. So you can probably buy a cape from someone and then they'll, uh, you know, he'll be able to cut off the skull cap on top of your Euro mount and put that in the form and stitch up the cape and you'll have a, you'll have a shoulder mount. Right. It, my, and the reason I want to do it now is because it fell off the wall and, 
I don't know what happened to it, but I came into the room and it was on the ground and the nose portion of it broke off. You know, those mm. thin bones that yeah. can't come off. Those all broke off. And uh, so now I, it, it just, it looks like I found it dead and didn't shoot it. You know what yeah. I mean? So I want to get it. I think I want to get it shoulder mounted. But what, that's another five hundred bucks. Yeah. What buck was that? It's the buck I killed in two thousand and nine. It was uh, I call it the two by four buck because it's a four point side with just like a, two really big points coming off of it, like a main beam and then a G one, and that's it. Yeah, or G two. That's yeah. a cool deer. That's a cool day. I remember that one. I'll, I'll always remember that because that's the first time I ever saw you was that <laughs> was the video when you shot that buck. And I will always remember when you're like, that buck came in and made me go, oh. <laughs> and so I had to shoot him. And then I said, you know what? I think I like that guy. We should do a podcast together. Someday. He's a huge tool, but I think I like him. <laughs> and here we are today. And here we are. So, all right. Well, um, I'll be interested to see what that looks like. That'll be cool. And um, on that note, I suppose, unless you've got anything else, we should uh, we should wrap this one up. Oh man, I'll see you, I'll see you uh, I'll see you tomorrow, or talk to you tomorrow. Oh yeah, because you're having me on your podcast. That's right. Well, be sure to check out the uh, Nine Finger Chronicles whenever that comes out, folks. All right. Well, we are gonna stop here. We're gonna take a listen to our Sitka story of the day, and then we'll get Tovar on, and he'll uh, elevate the conversation from here. <laughs> For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Bo Martonic, who tells us about a spring turkey hunt where everything went right. It was last spring in Pennsylvania when uh, the temperatures were a lot lower than normal for, for a spring turkey hunt. I um, left my house early in the morning, well, well before light. I wanted to get a quick hunt in before work. And as, as I started crossing the valley, I heard some gobbles coming across the other ridge line. I hurried up, went down through the creek bottom. It was very windy and cold, about 38 degrees, and quite a bit of rain was coming down at this time, so it allowed me to get in pretty close to the, the roosty gobblers. As soon as it got light enough for, the, for them to come out of the roost, I gave a few soft calls with my, my grandpa's homemade call, and they flew down came over the ridge and uh, the big Tom gave me a good 35 yard shot and put him down, ran up to him, grabbed a hold of him and couldn't believe what I had. My, my biggest turkey to date, inch and a half spurs and a 10 and a half inch beard. And it was one of the craziest and quickest hunts that I was able to make it to work on time. On Bo's hunt, he was wearing Sitka's core lightweight base layers. If you'd like to create a Sitka story of your own, or to learn more about Sitka's technical hunting apparel, visit sitkagear.com. All right, with me now is Tovar Saruli. Welcome to the show, Tovar. Glad to be here. Hey, I, I, as I just mentioned a second ago, I've been looking forward to this for a while um, because you're a guy who I came across, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago um with your book and then some of your different articles I've seen online and and your perspective and the way you approach and talk about hunting and and what and how we do this um it's it's refreshing and I think it's an important one so I'm glad that I can finally get you on here for for our listeners to to get to meet you so so thanks for taking the time to do this Tovar My pleasure And 
for the people who aren't familiar with you yet, you know, I, I offered just a very brief intro uh, before you came on here, but can you give us the cliff notes on who you are, what you do now? Sure. Um, so, you know, my whole entry into this hunting world was a <clears throat> unusual one. I, I grew up fishing, uh, but never really did any hunting as a kid. Um, ended up becoming a vegetarian when I was 20. was a pretty strict vegetarian, vegan for basically a decade, um, and then uh, became a hunter and mainly a deer hunter. Um, and I've been in in the hunting world, literally, you know, hunting and also in lots of conversations and and research and writing and all kinds of things about, about hunting um, <clears throat> since then, which is now going on, you know, about almost 15 years. Uh, so <clears throat> I am an author. I ended up going back to grad school and studying stuff related to hunting in grad school uh, and have been doing a lot of speaking and, and consulting work relating to wildlife conservation, hunting, relationships between the hunting conservation world and the non-hunting environmental conservation world and all the crossovers and coalitions and alliances that exist there and could exist there and have existed there historically and uh, so yeah, lots of that, lots of that kind of stuff. Man, uh, that's that's the kind of thing that is right up my alley too. Uh, what what specifically were you studying while you were in grad school? What were you working on there? So <clears throat> I did my um, my master's uh, thesis on what I called adult onset hunters, <laughs> those of us who caught the bug late. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and I interviewed a bunch of folks who had like me, you know, come to hunting as adults and just investigated, you know, what it was that <clears throat> motivated them, how they thought about it. The discipline I was in is communication. So really paying attention to, to language and how we tell stories about things and how we, you know, make sense of these things that we do in our lives. Uh, and uh, that, that was fascinating to, to listen to folks and, and hear um, their unique perspectives, um, the commonalities among them, which in some ways are very different from folks who grew up hunting, uh, but in some ways are very similar, and we just use different language to talk about it. Uh, but we have a lot of similar experiences and often similar sorts of, uh, of values and, and feelings about what we're doing in, in hunting. We just come at it from different sort of backgrounds culturally. Hmm. So So what's... What was your goal or with that line of, of your thesis there and in the study that you're doing and now the communication work you're doing, looking into these connections between non-hunting conservationists and hunters and how we talk about these things. And basically all these topics that you just listed off are exactly what I'm hoping we can spend this entire time talking about. Um, but what, why does this intrigue you so much? Why are you looking into this? Why is this important? Um, <clears throat> other than, you know, being fascinated by <laughs> interesting stories and interesting people, uh, you know, I think that there, despite our differences, uh, say, in the conservation world and the environmental world broadly, despite our differences, <clears throat> there is so much common ground. There are so many common values. And because of, you know, issues around hunting or particular types of hunting or 
you know, historical conflicts over some particular piece of legislation or any number of things, locally, nationally, whatever scale you want to think about. Um, we tend, in, in those worlds in particular, to paint each other as the big problem, like the enemy. So, you know, among, in, among certain hunting conservation circles, you know, a certain subset of that world, you know, the non-hunters or anyone who's a non-hunter is an anti-hunter. <laughs> so, like, you know, it's the antis and the environmentalists. That's the big problem. That's what threatens hunting more than anything. And I don't buy that for a second. And similarly, on the sort of environmental side, you'll get some people thinking that, you know, hunters um, and what they stand for is really, that's really the big problem. You know, that they're driving species extinct, you know, even here domestically, you know, in North America, uh, which just isn't the case, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, and so there's a lot of misconceptions and just stereotypes about environmentalists, and that tends to go along with stereotypes of liberals and stereotypes about hunters, which tend to go along with stereotypes of conservatives. And <laughs> there's these gross, gross stereotypes that we spend so... And granted, we have differences. I mean, granted, there are differences. But we spend so much time and so much energy focusing on the differences and on each other as enemies that we miss this huge common ground in the middle, this huge amount of common value. If you just get rid of some of those stereotypes and some of those assumptions and you start to listen to folks and start to learn their language a little bit, you're like, oh, that's like me. <laughs> that's kind of similar, you know? Uh -huh. um, so I spent a lot of time, you know, with people across that whole spectrum and listening to folks and, and getting a sense of where they're really coming from, what their values are, and what, you know, what drives them to support, you know, conservation or to be opposed to some initiative that some other group has, has put forth. And, uh, you know, the more time I spend doing it, the more I'm convinced that, you know, we have a lot more in common and c could <clears throat> and have historically and still do when allied with each other, when pulling together, uh, accomplish just incredible stuff. You know, it's, it's happened over the past century and more, um, but in these political times, and I don't mean just, you know, <clears throat> the past year, <laughs> but I mean, you know, the past decade, where we tend to be more and more polarized and in our own little echo chambers on social media and so on, um, I think that we're at risk of, of losing some of that collaborative uh, spirit. Yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree. And, and like you said, if you look back in history, there's there's so many examples of us doing these things together. You look back to Teddy Roosevelt and John Muir, or you look mm -hmm. back at mm -hmm. Aldo Leopold and Bob Marshall, um, yep. and so many other examples of that where when the, when the hunting and non-hunting conservation communities can come together to work towards those shared goals, we can achieve so, so much more, but it does take that open line of communication and it does take that willingness to look past stereotypes. And, um, you know, and like you said, sometimes there are differences. We aren't going to see everything eye to eye, but for sure, maybe six things out of 10 we do and let's work on those things. And then maybe by way of working on those things together, we can start to better understand each other on the things that we have differently. And who sure. knows, there might be progress to be made there too. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, historically, it's not like it was easy necessarily 75 or 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Sure. Uh, but there was, I think, in quite a few cases, a lot more common ground. I mean, there was, you know, there were editorials being written in, you know, field and stream in the mid 20th century that you just never see today. You know, they were just so explicitly pro-environment, you know, and the, the support that like the Wilderness Act of 64 had was so broad politically, despite, you know, regardless of whatever you think about some of the ways that it's been implemented and some of the rules related to it, you know, there has been a lot of, of, of common ground. And uh, I think it's important to continue to, to find that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to, I want to dive into that a little more and examine how we can do that maybe. But before that, I think I probably need to rewind the tape a little bit to better get our foundation here in your story and how you got to this point, because you you mentioned the fact that you were a vegetarian for a long time back um, some number of years ago, and then you made this transition to now becoming a hunter and not only a hunter, but a hunter who's, who's, you know, prolifically talking about it and sharing your story with people. Um, And so you tell that story in pretty fascinating detail in your book, The Mindful Carnivore. It's a a book I've really enjoyed. Um, I highly recommend it to people. Um, And I want to hear a little bit of your thoughts on what you're, what you're doing with that book and what you're trying to achieve in that journey. But I want to, I want to read the quote um, that you led off the book with. There's a quote here from a, a Mary Midgley and it says that the symbolism of meat eating is never neutral. To himself, the meat eater seems to be eating life. To the vegetarian, he seems to be eating death. There's a kind of gestalt shift between the two positions, which make it hard to change and hard to raise questions on the matter at all without becoming embattled. And I think this kind of this quote very neatly kind of ties up some of the things we've already been talking about, and it does do a nice job of kicking off the theme of your story in that book. Um, can you just tell us a little bit more about that journey in detail? I mean, how did you go from this point to being, it sounds like from what I remember reading, quite morally opposed to the idea of killing an animal, um, and hunting to now where you are now. Can can you fill us in a little more on what that experience was like? What triggered these changes in your mindset and, and led you to this point? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I became a vegetarian and then a, a vegan, very strict, you know, not having, dairy or eggs or anything, uh, largely out of concern for animal welfare, you know, <clears throat> compassion for other living beings and not wanting to cause unnecessary suffering and so on. Uh, and that was when I was about 20. And other reasons piled up. I mean, you, you get, this happens with any of us, I think, you, you get convinced of a certain lifestyle or, you know, a certain choice. <clears throat> and then you find lots of other reasons that justify it. <laughs> so whether they're, you know, health rationales or environmental ecological rationales, all kinds of other sort of things come along that you can latch onto and use uh, to support that choice, that mm-hmm. position. And so I stuck with that for those reasons, you know, uh, <clears throat> for, for most of a decade. And then toward, you know, the end of that, period of time, I started to realize that, first of all, my diet, whatever I was eating, was not 
somehow removed from and uh, innocent in you know, impacts on the natural world. I mean, the way we create crop fields is we, you know, we rip up prairie or we fell forest or whatever. You know, there's wildlife habitat that gets, <laughs> gets destroyed to create mm-hmm. agriculture. <laughs> and then we, if we have any large numbers of uh, deer or, or other creatures that are coming to feast on that agriculture, well, then, you know, we have to kill them or control them in some way. And I started to read books uh, like, uh, it's a fantastic book called Heart and Blood by Richard Nelson about deer, one of my favorite books about, about deer. Uh, he's an anthropologist, and he studies people's relationships with deer all across North America. Mm-hmm. And I realized, wow, there are these, you know, soybean fields and pumpkin fields. And at any high density of, of deer population, farmers and folks who get ag tags are killing a lot of deer to protect these agricultural crops. Almost any agricultural crop involves, you know, controlling deer in, in most of uh, North America. And I found that rather disturbing <laughs> as a vegan. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. what, you know, what does that mean now if I'm eating vegetables? <laughs> Tofu made of soybeans, you know. Uh, it's sort of disconcerting to realize how much is going on. And, of course, grain combines are chopping up smaller creatures all the time and so mm-hmm. on. So I was still vegetarian at that point. But what those realizations did is they took this very black and white view I had of the world, uh, you know, plants good, animals bad <laughs> for food, um, and it introduced a lot of gray. And I, these very hard edges, these hard ethical distinctions that I made started to soften a bit. So I was just a bit more open-minded to possibilities and what things mean and, and don't mean. And then a few years later, maybe two years later, um, my doctor um, looked at my blood chemistry and said, you know, your, your health, maybe in my immune system, it wasn't like I was deathly ill, but my, my immune system wasn't doing great. <clears throat> and she said, you know, you might want to consider some change to your diet because your, your blood chemistry suggests that <clears throat> nutrition is a bit off. Um, and she suggested uh, that I you know, put some animal foods back into my diet. Um, and so between that initial realization and the sort of a softening of those categories, you know, hardening of the categories is, I think, <laughs> a dangerous disease. Uh, and then my, you know, dietary and nutritional sort of situation, I said, okay, let's try something different. Um, so first it was like, a bowl of yogurt, you know, which is, if you've been a vegan for a decade, like a bowl of yogurt is pretty radical. <laughs> Big deal. It's the first time I've yeah. ever heard bowl of yogurt referred to as radical. <laughs> right, right. I like it. Uh, and then, you know, some, some eggs, and we started, you know, buying some local chicken. And at that point, I said, you know, we started eating some fish, too. My, and my wife had been vegetarian, and she sort of went through this whole journey with me. Uh, and I said, well... I'm eating other creatures now. I mean, I'm back to this and dealing with, psychologically dealing with, you know, eating other creatures, which is kind of weird if you've been a vegetarian for a long time. Uh, so I said, I'm going to go back to fishing. You know, I'm going to start getting back into, into fishing and 
taking some degree of firsthand responsibility, being involved directly with that. Right. So I did that. And within, you know, a year, I started just thinking about hunting. I live in a rural area. I live in <clears throat> north central Vermont. I, I look out the door and there's woods and, you know, <clears throat> there's deer and some small game. And I said, huh, you know, I wonder about hunting. And I didn't have any immediate background in it. My uncle on my mom's side, one of my uncles is a hunter, but I didn't grow up right around him. And so I didn't have any direct uh, immediate family or friends that, that hunted. And so it seemed kind of foreign, uh, kind of a strange idea, but hunting culture is still pretty alive here. It's not, you know, it's not hidden. There's, plenty of hunters around and I just started to entertain the possibility and, and toy with it and talk to my uncle and just sort of eased into it. Um, and part of the reluctance was both the idea of taking a life of a large mammal, like a deer. Uh, I was reluctant somewhat to do that, but also because I had so many, and we have generally as a culture, so many conflicting, um, ideas and feelings and stereotypes about hunting it was not just the act of hunting which appealed to me as an outdoors person you know i already like to hike and watch wildlife and look for wildlife sign and all that stuff so it was just another another layer to getting to know the land you know through a hunter's eyes that was appealing in and of itself um as was the conflicted sort of ethical confrontation with you know taking life of a, of a big animal uh, but the idea of becoming a hunter, just that identity, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Was, uh, coming from, coming a, from where I came from, I was like, what, what's it going to mean if I'm a hunter? <laughs> yeah, and is that, was that appealing in like some kind of romantic notion of the, the backwoods hunter of the 1800s, or was that appalling when you thought of <laughs> right. the stereotypes of the beer-guzzling redneck shoot em up bang em up what, Which right, one right, of those right. things were you thinking of? Um. A little bit of the appeal, but probably more of the appall. <laughs> like, you know, who am I going to be, like, in my own eyes, in, in my friend's eyes? And, you know, it's just a strange thing to contemplate. And hunting, incidentally, and I cover this a little bit in my book, even though we have various sort of mythologies about hunting in American history, hunting has actually always been kind of a conflicted thing. Uh, it was a conflicted thing for the early settlers, in terms of who got to hunt back in Europe and who hunted here, namely mostly American Indians. Um, and so it was sort of a sort of social class and culture and religion. The Puritans didn't like it because people enjoyed it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's all kinds. Of, it's always been kind of conflicted. How it's been conflicted has changed over the years and the degree to which it's been conflicted, but it's always been this kind of weird thing. So with that being the case, how did you, you mentioned this a second ago? With not only did you have to think about what this change meant for you, but what did your friends think at the time? What did the, your fellow vegans or vegetarians think as you were considering making this change? And then when you did, were you were they supportive? Were you ostracized? Did they think you were nuts? Yeah, um, mostly. I had, I was more fearful of it than, than I needed to be, you know. I, was, I guess I wasn't fearful, but I wondered. Um, and mostly there was no 
big blowback or anything. I think some people, even the idea of me fishing was kind of weird for some people that I knew. But a lot of my friends weren't vegetarians, and they just knew that I was. And some were, but it, it was it was overall a pretty easy transition. Um, some people were certainly surprised, neighbors and friends, who would find out uh, that I was hunting or, or see me you know, out hunting. A neighbor walking his dog, like, what are you doing out here? Uh, <clears throat> but uh, I, you know, that had a lot to do with their knowledge of me and their, you know, some, for some of them, their stereotypes of hunting and of hunters. Um, so I didn't exactly advertise it when I first started to explore this and first started to get back into fishing and, and hunting. It wasn't something that I, that I talked about a lot or <clears throat> publicized in any way. Um, and actually, when I first wrote an essay for a very short, like one-page essay for a magazine about this transition into, into being a hunter, I was a little bit unsure how people would react. You know, I, I think of it sort of as my first step uh, coming out of the closet as a hunter. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like who's, who's going to find out I'm a hunter and what are they going to think? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I wrote another essay for a different magazine about, about a similar uh, but a similar sort of thing, and then started to contemplate this idea of, of actually writing a book, which, uh, you know, I just felt compelled to do it. You, know, you asked a few minutes ago, like, what were you aiming to accomplish? You know, I had no idea. <laughs> I, I just felt compelled, like, I'd written this essay, and I thought, gosh, maybe this is the seed of a book. Maybe I could develop, I'd never written a book before, you know, maybe I could develop this into a a full-fledged book and just the idea sort of gnawed at me and I started to do some research into how you get a book published and you know it took me a couple years to to make it happen but uh it just wouldn't let go of me I felt like I it was a story that I just had to had to tell for some reason yeah well, I'm, I'm glad you did um it, I think there's there's an important story to be told here um so you you had this compulsion to start taking some form of responsibility for the animal protein that you're eating and that you mm-hmm. your impact on the world. You mm-hmm. had an uncle who was showing you some things about hunting. You eventually, you know, from from reading from having read the book, I know that you eventually started going out and eventually you do kill a deer. Eventually is a key word there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what what was that experience like? What were what was going through your mind, through your heart? Uh, what what happened? Well, you know, it, it took me a few years. I was though I hunt, I've hunted bow season, rifle season, muzzleloader season. Um, <clears throat> mostly, I was hunting rifle season and. After my second year, after my first year of hunting, I think that meant that here in Vermont, I was restricted to you know uh, forked forked antlers. You know, we have an antler restriction <clears throat> rule here, so no does, no spike horns, no fawns, just you know bucks with uh, with more antler. And so I'd see deer, but I very rarely <laughs> saw a deer that was legal for me, <clears throat> and I was pretty clueless and just trying to figure things out. So it took me several years. And by the time I got 
it was like beginning of my fourth autumn of 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 deer hunting and i had taken one ill-advised shot in rifle season a couple years earlier and hit a branch you know didn't hit the deer thankfully um but i'd sort of given up almost (laughs) like i was still going out there it happened if it was in a a place with more deer or i had more of a clue i might have had more faith but the the success rate here in Vermont in rifle season is pretty darn low. And, uh, my confidence had, had slipped quite a bit. <laughs> and then second morning of that, that rifle season, uh, a couple hours into, into that morning, you know, here comes this, this buck. And I was completely shocked. Um, and he came into this pretty thickly wooded area that I hunt. And he came into about 30 yards away and had his head down on a scrape. And, you know, I didn't have a clear shot. And he took that, he took that last step and I had a clear shot and squeezed the trigger. And he did that little hunched jump Mm -hmm. that they'll do when you've got a good, good heart shot and, you know, ran about, 20 yards and went down and didn't get up and i was in complete shock i mean i was in complete shock because it had happened yeah <laughs> partly i was like oh my god that finally happened <laughs> but more more importantly i was in kind of emotional shock that i had just killed this animal and i i had killed you know in the previous few years i'd done some small game hunting i'd shot a few snowshoe hares and i'd taken out a few woodchucks in the garden and that kind of thing but you know killing a big animal like a deer is a totally different thing and i was just kind of numb at first like just Mm -hmm. shocked that it happened and that that here's this dead animal um so i you know went through the you know field dressing and dragged out the deer with the help of a friend and I realized over the next, I don't know, a few hours or day or so that I was sad. I mean, I was, there was a lot of grief for me that I had, you know, taken the life of this, this gorgeous, gorgeous animal. And I wondered, I was like, am I going to want to do this again? This is all this effort, all this time, all of, and yeah, I'm getting food out of it, but I've also, you know, bear the responsibility for having taken this life firsthand. Yeah. Do I want to do that again? And it was the, for me, it was the process of butchering that animal. It was the process of, and I, which I always knew I'd do myself, you know, I'd, I'd help my uncle do it once. And I knew that just as being a vegetarian, I wasn't going to just start, you know, um, buying, meat from the lots of meat from the grocery store and I wanted to hunt it I wasn't going to now turn around and take it to a butcher I needed to really take it all the way through uh go through with the whole thing and so standing there for you know hours and hours working on the the butchering of of that deer was was an amazing experience for me and really got me grounded and it felt like you know this is so familiar like this is ancient and 
I'm okay with it, actually. I'm, this is part of, you know, call it what you will, you know, a circle of life or whatever you want to call it. But this is, you know, this is the way things are, and it's okay for me to be part of it. And it actually feels, you know, feels appropriate. And, yeah, okay, I don't want to rush out and kill another deer next week. But by the time next fall rolls around, yeah, I'll probably do this again. Yeah. Did you have any hesitation actually before pulling the trigger when you realized that a shot was there? Did you still have this moment of, do I really want to do this? Or had you already made that decision so far ahead of time and put in so much time that it was just, you know, happening? It was just, at that point it was just happening. Yeah. I mean, yeah, at that point it was, I've been, I've been on that, I've been on that path for years at that point, And I knew if I was given the opportunity, I knew where it was going. Yeah. So what about now? How does your feeling or what is that moment like now after killing a deer? Do you feel those <laughs> same things that you felt that first time? Do you ever still have those questions? Um, or I don't know, where, where's your head at now when you walk up on a deer you just shot? Yeah, it's, it's really different now. I mean, it's still, and it, it sort of has it has evolved. Like the second year was different. The third year was different. You know, the fourth year, the fifth year, the sixth year, you know, each deer was different. Um, and for quite a few years, it was still a serious shock. Like my, I was like in an altered state <laughs> for like another day or two after that. Not, the same kind of shock, not the same kind of conflicted feelings, um, not doubting it at all, you know, in that way, but just the power, you know, the, the powerful and sort of awesome moment in, in that old sense of awe of, of, you know, beauty and power and of taking a life is still, you know, still something that really affects me. Um, it doesn't affect me as much as it did in those first few years. Um, but it's still, you know, it's sacred. I mean, it's a, I think it's a powerful and sacred thing and it needs to be done respectfully and, and all of that, but I'm not conflicted like I used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Especially that, especially that first year. Yeah. No, I feel like, I feel like I even have a lot of the same feelings and, and thoughts and it is a powerful it's a powerful, sacred thing, I think. And I think mm-hmm. if you don't have those feelings or if you get to a point where you don't feel something, I don't know how to always explain that complicated kind of swamp of emotions that many of us feel after having taken a life. Um, but if there's mm-hmm. not something deep that you're experiencing in that moment, I, I worry a little bit. I worry that something's been lost there. Um, yeah, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, you go back to, you know, you go back to cave art. I mean, you know, animals have been important to human beings forever, you know, and there's always been, you know, uh, like rituals and ceremonies around the hunt. And, you know, people have always recognized in various cultures and various ways that our relationship with these animals, you know, and frankly with the act of killing, you know, of the the violent taking of another life, especially of another big mammal, 
you know, that deserves to be treated with a certain degree of reverence and sort of, and even caution, you know, sort of morally and spiritually. And the thing I'm concerned about, uh, not so much with hunters in general, but just our relationship with animals in general for food is that, you know, so many of us, again, not so much hunters, uh, but, you know, Americans, for example, in, in general, have been, become so disconnected from the animal that it's just meat. Right. You know, and there's, it's, it has no soul. It has no heart when we go to the grocery store. You know? It's, it's just a commodity. Yeah. It's just a package. It came on a truck, you know. Um, and, that's, and that's one thing that I think actually hunters have in common with a lot of vegetarians <laughs> is that a lot of vegetarians refuse to say, oh, that's just meat. I'm not going to think about it as an animal. You know, they say, no, it's an animal. You know, we got to respect that. And I choose not to eat it, you know. And hunters, by and large, will say, you know, I don't want to just think of all my food as just food. No, it's also an animal that I, you know, I know that animal's habits. I know the places where that animal lives. And I know that individual animal, the life of, you know, which I took. Yeah. And, and so there's a, you know, uh, we sort of, by hunting, we're forcing ourselves and want to stay connected to that and not just make all meat some commodity on a shelf. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a it's a unique perspective and a, just a powerful connection. I think that we uniquely get as hunters that, yeah, sometimes it's it's hard. It it's a it's a frustrating irony when you find some people who don't hunt, but who do eat meat just fine, who want to attack hunters for doing what we do. And I can understand sometimes when they see something, how it can seem disrespectful to animals. How there are certainly things out there that frame hunting and hunters in a bad light. And I can understand why nine hunters would see that and, and not think too keenly of us sometimes. Um, sure. But sometimes there is some amazing hypocrisy out there. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. That, <clears throat> that is, I think, on us to, to better communicate and help people understand why we do what we do and how we do it and how maybe it, unfortunately, none of us have clean hands, right? As you said earlier, sure. we all make an impact. We all have blood on our hands, whether we want to admit it or not. If Even if you're not eating meat, um, yeah. just by living in this society, we all make an impact. And I think we as hunters, um, like you said, we at least can try to take responsibility for some portion of that, reconnect with that in some way. And um, I think that's a pretty powerful thing. And, and all this stuff we're talking about. Um, I never used to think about this at all. You know, I grew up in a hunting family. I started going out in the woods when I was three years old and I was sitting in a blind with my dad at four and I was hunting with a bow in my hand at 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I ever thought about what I was doing or why I was doing it or sure. it was just I didn't what, think about why I was fishing like when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. It was it was just what you did and I knew right. I I knew I enjoyed doing it. I enjoyed being up there with my grandpa, my dad and my uncle and I liked being in in the woods and I loved watching deer and I loved the idea of hunting. Um and I ended up 
you know, being able to kill a deer and then another deer. And I started having success doing that and I enjoyed eating venison. It was, it was just what you did. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who grow up hunting, having been just in that culture, in that world, um, you might not ever take a second to step back and start thinking about hunting. It wasn't for me until I was probably 21 or 22 or somewhere around then when I started actually writing and reading a lot about hunting, um, you know, just through my work with Wired to Hunt. I just was thinking about it a lot more, trying to, like, communicate about it, which led me to reading about other people's perspectives on it, which forced Mm -hmm. me to start looking at myself, forced me to start looking at what I was doing and how I was doing it and what that meant. And that has been one of the most powerful transitions I think for myself as a hunter over the last decade as I've mm-hmm. gone from just being a hunter to becoming you know, a thoughtful hunter and to actually doing things um, with a clarity of, of mind maybe an understanding of of why and how I'm doing these things um, mm-hmm. you interestingly being a adult onset hunter you were kind of forced to do that deep thinking leading up to it because you had to, for me, I didn't even have a decision to make. It was just, this is what you did. Right. And I just <clears throat> fell into it. I think as an sure. adult coming to this, you, you have to think about these things deeply and, 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 and decide whether or not this is the right thing for you to do and, and how you're going to do it. Um, why do you, th- or maybe it's not even a why, but I think so. Do you think that this kind of deep thinking, like considering why we do these things, how we do these things, all these things we just talked about. Do you think it's important for people, even that have been hunting their entire lives, to start asking these questions of themselves, or at least to be thinking about these ideas and topics? I think it's, I think it's really useful for a variety of reasons, um, and I can touch on, on one or two of those. Um, I mean, I'm hesitant to sort of proselytize anybody and say, you know, yeah, you grew up hunting, but now you got to think about it. It's <laughs> <laughs> is a little heavy-handed, you know, to <clears throat> to tell people sort of how to think or what to think. Um, but I do, you know, I do think it is helpful uh, for all of us, whether we grew up, you know, non-hunting or in an anti-hunting family, to think about and investigate our own beliefs and our own assumptions and, and learn more about other perspectives and the same true for folks who, you know, grew up in a very much in a hunting family and hunting culture to say, Oh, well, you know, why, why do I think about it this way? And why do other people think about it that way? And just understand, um, one of the reasons that I think it's really useful to do the kind of, you know, reflection and questioning that you've, obviously done um is that it helps you become a better ambassador it helps you become someone who can help build these connections and coalitions you know whether it has to do with you know wildlife habitat or public lands or you know connections between what I call adult onset hunting and the food movement and just finding the common ground that <clears throat> doesn't, it's not going to turn everyone into hunters and that's not the goal. You know, things would be insane if everyone hunted. <laughs> um, there's a numbers. Uh, it's not, that's not the point. It's not to turn everyone into hunters. Uh, but if we want sustainable funding for our fish and wildlife agencies, if we want, <clears throat> you know, 
intact public lands where a variety of types of, of recreation are possible for human beings and a variety of, of diverse wildlife species can, can survive, um, then we need to be able to work together and not always be on these, you know, these opposing uh, sides uh, and not perceive ourselves uh, as being on one side versus this, uh, you know, this enemy. So I think for that reason alone, and there are other benefits too, but I think for that reason alone, it's really helpful to reflect on those things and start to recognize some of the ways that we communicate and the other side, quote unquote, other side communicates, uh, whether it's through, you know, the words we use and the images we use that, you know, don't help (laughs) and other ways that do help. Yeah. It's something that, um, maybe to the chagrin of our listeners, sometimes I, I preach about this often in that just being this, um, what you just described there, how we are perceived by non-hunters, how we communicate to non-hunters, it matters. And, you know, oh, yeah. no, number one, like you said, we do want some additional hunters. We do need to make sure we don't lose our hunting population because we have a we have a powerful, meaningful impact on the natural world, and we fund a lot of things, and the work we do from a conservation standpoint is important. So bringing more people into the fold, yes, definitely important. But number two, at a minimum, it's important that people will at least be accepting of our way of life because we live in a democracy where votes in the end end up deciding very often what privileges are allowed. And whether you like it or not, hunting is a privilege right now. It's not something that's guaranteed by the Constitution or anything like that. So if we want to be able to continue to hunt, we need to make sure that people that are voting view our activity as as something that's acceptable in today today's world. And that's on us to make sure that's happening, to make sure that we're representing ourselves in such a way that people can see that and say, okay, you know what? I get that. I maybe don't want to do it, but I'm okay with Mark killing a deer and feeding his family that way. Um, you, you said something in a blog post I saw that I liked, um, that I think would help this whole challenge of, of helping hunters and non-hunters meet and, and see some things maybe a little more eye to eye. You said, quote, what if at least once in their respective lifetimes, every Prius hauled a deer and every hunter drove a hybrid? <laughs> can you <laughs> can you explain that why why that might yeah. be helpful? Well, I mean, it was you know the that particular post came out of an experience I had where I <clears throat> I took a a whitetail and we had my friend and I had two vehicles where where we were hunting. We had we had my little hatchback and his little hatchback. <laughs> uh, I used to, I used to have a uh, pickup truck, but at the time I was driving a you know little Subaru hatchback. But what we had right there at the woodlot, uh, family woodlot of <clears throat> of his, was um, his Prius. Now, it turns out he's a lifelong hunter. He's not a you know not a adult onset. But uh, I took a picture of it and it just had these you know the hind legs of this whitetail buck hanging out of the end of a Prius because we couldn't fit it in there, you know, and it was just, it was just the image was so funny. Uh, and, but I, I thought it was a great metaphor for bringing together these different, uh, <clears throat> these different communities and just sort of trying on for size, you know, Hey, 
we can think about uh, deer hunting, for example, um, as you know, local, free-range, pretty nearly organic <laughs> food, which you know really appeals to the to the uh, you know folks in the, the environmental conservation community, um, but they don't necessarily always connect that with hunting, uh, <clears throat> and. So, and lots of hunters I know, including the guy who owns this Prius, you know, he and his wife, that at the time, I think, they owned one car between them, and uh, it's a Prius. And <clears throat> he cares a lot about environmental conservation. And, you know, he, he's, he's a professional forester and worked with, you know, the Audubon Society and, you know, lots of conservation work. Um, and he's a hunter. <laughs> and you got to be able to see these these sorts of sorts of overlaps in our values and and what we're uh, concerned about and maybe how our image of ourselves and our image of the other get in the way sometimes. Mm-hmm. So how, how do we do a better job of that? And that being, I guess, how do we do a better job of communicating and representing ourselves so that those types of connections can ha- can happen? Um, mm-hmm. Because there. Uh, I think especially today in the world of social media where yeah. messages or imagery can, can go out into the world and then it can be shared to far-reaching parts of society that, that don't have any context around it. Sure. There's a lot of examples where things kind of get, I don't know, things get kind of crazy. How, mm-hmm. how do we mm-hmm. get better at our PR? How do we get better at handling and, and creating an atmosphere where – these types of positive connections can happen and not negative. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think there are a number of parts to that. And one of them is developing an understanding of what that thing, whether it's a picture or, <clears throat> you know, uh, a phrase, or, you know, language, images, whatever it is, how is that likely to be perceived by folks who aren't, who, who are, who don't have context for it or, or don't have that experience? Uh, and I find that on both sides, again, I'm using the two side language, which is probably bad, but, uh, but people in both sort of the, the extreme camps, will often, and this is not just hunting and, you know, non-hunting, but <clears throat> any, any sort of issue. Kind of our whole world we today. To, <laughs> we, yeah, yeah, exactly. We sort of, we get in our little bubbles and we just dig in and we're like, look, this is who I am. This is what I believe. Take it or leave it. You know, and so hunters and, you know, any number of people can, can do that. And we just keep saying and doing and displaying the same stuff. And we don't want often to question it. We don't want to really know. We don't, you know, we even say, you know, I don't give a dang how that person feels. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let them be upset. You know, I'm just going to do it louder. Yep, and exactly, you know, and I get where that impulse comes from. I mean, I, I feel that way sometimes, but, if we're thinking about this strategically and we're thinking about the long haul, as you say, you know, we are an 
extreme minority as hunters. You know, and in a democracy where <clears throat> votes determine policy in the long run, you know, you can't have five or ten percent of the population just given that you know having that screw them attitude and think that they're going to continue to be uh, you know applauded or even tolerated <laughs> just not going to happen in the long run so if we just think about um whether it's the sorts of pictures that we use or even even the language that that we use and i'm not saying we should like totally censor ourselves and not use the sorts of language that we're accustomed to or grew up, grew up with, but we need to at least be aware of the impact that it can have and make an effort to sort of translate it <laughs> yeah. for people. You know, it's like, here's the context of this. Here's what, you know, this means in my community and I can understand how it might not make sense or might be offensive in your community. Let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, here's what this image meant to me or, or, or means to my people, you know, and I don't understand what you're saying. You keep using this, you know, this word, and I think it means this, and that really ticks me off. But what do you mean? You know, right. I mean, just finding ways to have that kind of conversation about, uh, about how we're, you know, communicating instead of falling prey to the temptation to just jump into that sort of fight or flight mode. You know, I feel we're under assault as hunters. We're defensive. We're, I mean, that's a certain mindset. But rather than just falling into we're going to fight the good fight, realize that there are probably a bunch of people who on this quote other side are also falling prey to that temptation to fly off the handle mm -hmm. <laughs> and just dig in and get angry and, you know, and blame us for being, you know, barbarians. Um, and if, if there's some on that side and some on this side who can, resist that temptation and walk into, you know, the admittedly pretty uncomfortable territory of saying, hmm, you know, maybe my view isn't the whole truth. Maybe there are other perspectives out there that, you know, have some degree of validity to them. And maybe we could find out more about each other. You know, it's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's and it can be really, you know, to be perfectly honest, it can be really disorienting when you start to realize that, oh my gosh, this view that I thought was just like horrible. You know, I still don't agree with it, but it kind of makes sense now that I understand it. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> That's disorienting and confusing. And to your point, you might not necessarily agree with them, but yeah. at least understanding the 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 background or understanding the rationale for that can can still help us better work together or at least understand each other a little bit more even if we still vehemently disagree with each other um that in itself i think is a step that can make a big difference yeah absolutely and whether that's for the future of hunting or you know 
wildlife conservation more broadly or any number of other things, it can make a huge difference. Yeah. Just having that, some of that sort of bipartisanship. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, you touched on language. You talked about how mm-hmm. one of the things we can focus on is how we talk about things. And it just sure. made me think of a question uh, that I, I get sometimes, and that mm-hmm. is how to, what word to use when describing what we do when we either kill or harvest an animal. I've I've used mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. different times, and I've had people right. criti- I've had people criticize me. Criticize both, right? Yeah, they'll tell me why would you say you're harvesting an animal? That's disrespectful to the animal because you're treating it just like a you're referring to it like almost like a crop. Um, or you have people who say why would you say so you're that, that's ki-? the criticism of harvest, right? Yeah, that's, that's the criticism, criticism of harvest. Of, right. And right. the criticism if I say I killed the deer, they say oh you shouldn't use the word kill. That's too harsh. You're gonna right. upset people, or people will. Right. Um, you know, I don't know. <laughs> you can't yeah. win with either one. I tend, I, know, it's tough. I personally tend to use the word kill, not because it's some type of vicious term, but simply because it is the reality of what we're doing. And I'm, right. um, it's, it's what's happening here and I'm going to take that responsibility, but that's just me. I don't have anything against sure. anyone for using either or what are your right. thoughts though, from, from your unique perspective, having been on, you know, yeah. being outside the, out, the hunting community at one point and now inside of it. How or what are your views on those two words and how we refer to what we're doing? I don't tend to use harvest either. Um, I find it feels a little weird, and it does feel like <laughs> I'm talking about the animal like a crop. I get sort of the why it's used and how deeply embedded it is in state and other wildlife management professions and <clears throat> institutions um, and in the hunting community more broadly. So I, I get it. Um, and some people really use it in a very mindful way. And they're thinking about what, what harvest really means. And, you know, so I've, I've sort of gotten more accustomed to it, but I still don't use it. Um, I would rather use something that <clears throat> seems more, as you say, sort of more honest about this is what's happening, <laughs> what we're doing. Um, you know, I personally often use the word take, um, which I use take and kill typically. Um, take is not as sort of direct as kill. Um, but sometimes I'll, I'll use that sort of as a middle ground. Yeah. Where it's it's not, you know, not not a crop not a crop word, you know. Yeah. <laughs> do, do, is there is there validity to that um that criticism of talking about killing an animal as a as a former vegan and vegetarian who probably had some anti-hunting views when mm-hmm. you heard someone say I'm killing a deer or I killed a deer, did that even turn you off even more? Um and I mm-hmm. I, I ask that because now yeah. if we're thinking about how can we better communicate to non-hunters mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How should we be talking about this? Does that even matter? Um, I don't know that that particular language, you know, matters a whole lot. But I don't think, at least from my memory and my perspective, I don't think that someone using the word "kill" uh, was any more upsetting. You know, I mean, if anything, it felt like sometimes it felt like harvest was kind of a euphemism. Like you're trying to pretend you're not killing. <laughs> like, come on, you know, don't, don't hide behind that word. <laughs> you're killing something. 
so <clears throat> I, I don't think that uh, I don't think that using the word kill is a problem for the non-hunting public. They know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no getting around <laughs> like, that. There's no getting around that. You can't can't hide that yeah so so we can improve how we talk about hunting a little bit we can try to represent ourselves in a in a more positive respectful light to make sure from the outside looking in what we're doing you know is is a positive thing um but how do we go about introducing new people to hunting being an adult onset hunter is there anything you can share you know either someone helped you out that you said, yeah, this was really helpful. This helped me get into it or anything that we can be doing now to, to better help bring people into this community. Well, the biggest draw for most of the people who are getting into hunting now as adults here in the U S and in Canada for that matter is food. I mean, those of us who have more experience hunting, and certainly those of us who, like you, grew up hunting, you know, you hunt for lots of reasons, right? It's not just food. It's not just, you know, any one thing. It's a whole mix yeah. of, of reasons, right? Absolutely. And yet the, the place that people, that adults, are mostly first connecting to it that might be you know through a friendship or you know a relationship between boyfriend girlfriend or spouses or whatever it might be that kind of relation relationship connection but the the thing that makes them interested at first is food by and large that's the most common thing and so just giving people the opportunity to try venison, for example, that's been, you know, well prepared and that they find delicious. You know, if you want to interest people in hunting, you give them a chance to, to see it as a source of food and to actually try the food, you know, that's like the, the big gateway <laughs> into the interest. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a vast territory between interest and being a self-identified hunter who can and will go out in the woods on your own and hunt. (laughs) Um, And that's something that there are a lot of folks interested in right now. Um, And I've been doing some work with, with a few folks on this is what are the barriers for new adults? What are the barriers or some of the obstacles for people who want to coach them or instruct them or mentor them? And how do we navigate that? You know, sometimes it's just, you know, cultural differences, political value differences, perceptions, stereotypes, all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, can come up. Uh, but having someone to turn to, not necessarily they're going to take you out hunting every season or, you know, anything like that, but just someone who knows the basics um, and can give you advice, you know, someone to turn to anything from, well, how do I pick out an appropriate rifle or, you know, what is, what do I look for in a good hunting spot or any, anything, Sure. just having someone 
Like for me, it was my uncle. I could email him. I, I only see him like once or twice a year because we live five hours apart, but I could email him. <laughs> and I did, <laughs> mercilessly. <laughs> <laughs> and I had just had so many questions because you said you were you know, in the field at three or four, right? Mm-hmm. You learned stuff when you were a kid that you don't even remember learning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's, I mean, you're just steeped in it. And by the time you were 15, you probably know more, knew more about hunting than I know now. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just a fact. You just absorb that mm-hmm. from your experiences, from family, friends. It just, you know, you know so much. And so those of us who come to it in our 20s, 30s, 40s, we don't know any of that. And we're starting... You know, we don't know the lingo. We don't know what deer sign even looks like in the woods. I mean, we don't know anything. Uh, and so just being a resource, someone who's, you know, willing to be asked, you know, <clears throat> just not like, again, yeah, like not like you have to become this person's bosom buddy and go out and mentor them every day of the season or something crazy, but just being a support and encouragement and a resource for them whether it's technical information or, you know, if, if they're struggling, if they've wounded an animal, God forbid, you know, and there's going to be, you know, times in any, any new hunter's career of becoming a hunter that they're going to have doubts about something. Um, and having, you know, someone who can just listen to them and not, not try to fix it, not try to, tell them, you know, how they should feel, but just, you know, you've probably been somewhere similar, even if you didn't have the same kinds of doubts they had, you know, you've been in a similar situation and at least you have some inkling of what they're struggling with and they got to talk to a hunter. (laughs) So it's, it's so true. And it's, it's easy. Um, I think sometimes I fall into this and I found myself, um, you fall into, especially if you're someone who's so, um, like for me, I'm a self-identified hunter and it, it really is like my life. My entire life kind of revolves around the things I do from a hunting perspective and I can get so mm-hmm. caught up in it, all the different things I'm doing, the places I'm going to, the the projects I'm working on, the time I'm spending in the field. It becomes really easy to become really selfish, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. the season goes by and you're like, wow, I didn't take out anyone else hunting or I didn't help anyone else out. Um, it's easy to fall into that. And I think it's something that, at least me personally, I'm trying to find ways to to get better about that and to just somehow um, keep myself reminded of the fact that, that it's important to reach out to new people. It's important to offer that mentorship if you can, to, to take a day and take someone else out. Um, like you said, you don't need to commit to taking someone out every t- single time you're going hunting. Um, no. But I think if we can all help you know, one person out once a year or something or as a starting point, at least I'm going to try to find ways like that to do this and, and start making some kind of impact. Um, cause if not, it's really easy for us to get obsessed with our own thing and forget about the bigger picture, which I think is, uh, which is a dangerous thing for the future of, of our lifestyle. Sure. And the other reason why doing that matters so much, just getting some of these folks, helping them find a, a path into hunting if, if they want to explore it is because they 
become your best ambassadors. Mm, yeah. They might be the, they might be the only hunter in their family or the only hunter in their workplace or their circle of friends or whatever it is. And even if they only hunt for five years, even if they decide not to continue and become a lifelong hunter, they have hunted. They are going to be talking about hunting to some degree. They're going to have a perspective on hunting and what it means and who hunters are that is totally different from the stereotypes that circulate around them. Yeah. And so they can be the translators. <laughs> you don't have to like, like just like talk about hunting differently and just do different, you know, take or show different pictures related to hunting. I mean, that, that's all great. But if you introduce one person to hunting, they're the ones who can help build that bridge. Yeah, there's a, there's a significant know? ripple effect. Absolutely. And so for the rest of their life, they are likely to have that, that kind of ripple effect out among people, even if they don't keep hunting. Yeah. And even if they don't keep buying a license and contributing to the you know, <clears throat> agency through that particular funding mechanism. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an important thing to remember. It's 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 a long term type of impact you can have just with that perspective that can be shared with one other person who could be shared with one other person who then shares that with two other people, and uh, that that could be the salvation of what we're trying to do here in the in the long run. Um, yeah, I mean, I see I see that happening a lot right now with you know, with uh, like folks who are involved with. Uh, you know, just getting into hunting, particularly folks who are involved with uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, you know, it's, it's bridging this gap between the environmental community and the hunting community. And there are <clears throat> folks who I know who are, you know, adult hunters, they've only been hunting for a handful of years, but they believe in what, you know, that organization is doing or just they're involved with other sorts of conservation work. And they are the only hunter or one of the first hunters in their circles of friends and family. And people are like, wow, you hunt? <laughs> you know? yeah. And it just changes the conversation. Yeah. yeah. So, so speaking of adult onset hunters, yeah. one, of the, one of the biggest challenges, um, and, and surveys have shown this, and I think anecdotally a lot of us can uh, relate to this, one of the greatest challenges for all hunters, let alone new hunters, is finding somewhere to hunt. If you don't live... Mm-hmm next to some giant public land or if you don't own ground it can be really hard to find places to hunt in a lot of parts of the country which is why i personally think and a lot of people think that having public lands having healthy and accessible public lands is so important um Mm -hmm. and i've seen that you are on the board of directors for or you're on the board for the new england chapter of backcountry hunters and anglers i'm on the board for the michigan chapter of backcountry hunters Mm -hmm. and anglers um, I'm pretty passionate about this as well, but why, why are you involved in the organization? I mean, largely because of that gap bridging that I see them doing, you know, they're willing to take on stuff and especially public lands issues, uh, but, but other issues as well that help and, and do it in a way that helps bridge the gap between the pretty broad range of, of different conservation groups um, and perspectives. Uh, 
as far as access, I mean, in certain parts, certainly of New England, um, Massachusetts and Connecticut come to mind, it's an issue. It's a serious issue. <clears throat> and development, I mean, partly it's lack of public lands, um, because we don't have nearly as much public lands as are out in the West. But it's also just the rate of development. I mean, what's happened in Massachusetts, like Western Massachusetts over the past, you know, 20 years, 30 years is phenomenal. They're losing forest land and other wildlife habitat at an incredible rate just because people are building houses and strip malls and whatever else. Um, so I think having a an active hunting conservation voice like BHA where it, you know, it's, we're speaking the language of access, public land, wildlife habitat, all this uh, in a way that um, isn't ostracizing, but actually is encouraging really good partnerships with other conservation groups. And so I think that folks like BHA, uh, <clears throat> Trout Unlimited, and a few others are, are doing that in a really constructive way um, and not doing it in a, in a highly sort of partisan way where it's, you know, just about hunting or, or ju just about one thing, but public lands and access and and wildlife habitat and places where you can go and get some quiet, you know, mm -hmm. those, those are commonly held values. And this goes back to what you said at the beginning, you know, this is, this is something that Teddy Roosevelt and John Weir could agree on. <laughs> despite their disagreement on hunting. Yep. Yeah, I 100% I agree. And I think that, to your point, the message of groups like BHA, it really resonates with, with me, and I think it can resonate with a lot of other people too because of that fact. It's it's very, um, I don't know, all-inclusive in, in, in a way, and it also speaks to some of our core central tenets of what we care about. So we talked earlier about how there's a lot of positive things that can come out of the hunting community working with the non-hunting conservation community. And I think we do have, in some cases, there are significant differences. Like some people within that community are not okay with the idea of killing animals. Of course, that's something we do. So there's a, a significant sure. difference there. But what we do all care about, we do care about healthy landscapes. We do care about clean water. We do care about access to, to wildlife habitat and healthy populations of wildlife mm -hmm. and having the opportunities to do those things. So I think, I think the more that hunting and fishing conservation organizations can focus on those aspects, I think we're going to have more opportunities for collaboration. So that's, that's why I personally have been excited about BHA or uh, organizations like the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership that mm -hmm. really work mm -hmm. on this, this inclusive approach. Like let's bring people together rather than pointing out, well, we don't, we disagree on this one thing. So we were never going to talk to you or work with you or, you know, attack some other group because they did work with a group that has some opposing views um, as if that's a bad thing that we can work with people who have different views sometimes. Um, I think that's actually a good thing. I think it's a good idea that we find ways to, to bridge those gaps, to find commonality, to work towards shared goals. Um, 
if we want to keep doing what we're doing and be able to live this hunting lifestyle, to be able to hunt and fish and have places to do that and have healthy wildlife and have, you know, some trees and some rivers and some wild places to get into, we're going to have to do those things moving forward because there are just, there are so many pressures on this way of life in these places that um, could change that if we aren't standing up for them. Yeah. And, and having as many people unified standing up for those things as we can. Uh, that, I, think, I think it's, it's really important. If, if we start saying, well, if we find one thing we disagree on, <laughs> we're not going to ever talk to each other again. You know, that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a, it's a habit. We kind of do that often. If, if you aren't, if you don't match me perfectly and agree with me on everything, then you're my enemy, you know? And it's, it's sadly, you know, it's, it's a common sort of thing to do, but you know, if, if, if you and I, the two of us talk long enough, we'll find something we disagree on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, it's, so. it's just, it's not practical. Like I, I'm, I'm just, when it comes to these different things, like you can get emotional about things and you can get, you know, revved up about something or you can get upset about something or you can really not like an idea. Um, but when it comes right down to it, if I have a set of goals and if the most practical, pragmatic way to achieve those goals is to make compromise occasionally or to agree to disagree or to, you know, say, all right, well, you know, I don't necessarily like everything about you, but hey, we've got this thing in common. Let's work towards this shared thing. It's just simply the, the reality of, of life if you if you want to get things done, if you want to achieve goals, you're going to have to take things from a pragmatic standpoint and not just that emotional, emotionally charged um, kind of way of approaching issues these days that I think is just uh, causing a lot of the crazy things we, ha- we see happening these days. I think that we've covered a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, and I, I always like to talk about, we, I said this to you earlier, and I also mention on the show sometimes, we always got like to mix in our vegetables and our candy. And today we've been talking a lot about these issues that sometimes aren't fun to talk about or to hear about. You know, these are the things that sometimes um, we'd like to be talking about a great hunting story or some great adventure or ideas for how to, you know, have a more successful hunt. Um, that's a lot of fun to do. But in the long run, if we want to be able to have those conversations, we need to get into this nitty gritty stuff every once in a while. And, uh, Tilvar, I think your, your insight and your experience and kind of your background uniquely, I think helps you share this, this, uh, perspective that I think is a really good one for people in the hunting community here. So I, uh, I appreciate you doing that Tovar. And I want to ask you one last question. If people, if people want to learn more about uh, your perspectives and ideas and some of your messages for this community, uh, where can they find that stuff online either or, or your book? Where can they find these things from you, Tovar? My website's easy to find. Uh, just my name, Tovar Cerulli. Heck of a thing to spell, but <laughs> T-O-V-A-R-C-E-R-U-L-L-I.com. Uh, but just the Mindful Carnivore will uh, certainly get you to, to my, my website, as well as to any number of places, you know, Amazon or your local bookstore or whatever where you could uh, could get the book if you're curious. Awesome. Well, I like I said earlier, highly recommend it. I enjoyed reading it. Read it a handful of years ago, and it's been one that I've pointed people towards for a long time now. So if you haven't read it yet, give it a look. Interesting read. And uh, Tovar, 
thank you again for for taking some time here and chatting with us. This has been really interesting, and uh, I really enjoyed it. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. And that's a wrap, folks. But a couple quick reminders. Number one, if you haven't left us a rating on iTunes, it takes like 20 seconds. It's a huge help to the Wire Hunt podcast, so please do that if you can. Number two, go head on over to the Wired to Hunt YouTube channel. I've mentioned this a little bit over the past few weeks, but I'm posting a lot more videos than I used to, trying to do a minimum of a weekly video, kind of documenting all the things going on in my life related to hunting right now. So be sure to check out the Wired Hunt YouTube channel. And otherwise, just want to thank our partners who helped make all of this possible. So big thanks to Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Hunter Maps. And finally, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for your attention and your support. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.